Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Turn to Psalm uh, chapter 89, if you would take your copy of God's Word as we continue through a selection of the Psalms throughout the summer. This morning we are in Psalm 89, and as you're turning there, we invite any children who will be participating in our children's class. You can make your way to that back room there. Our volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in the truth of God's Word there in that context this morning. Uh, As I said, we're going to be in Psalm 89 this morning. So as we do each week, I want to take a moment to read our passage and then to pause and to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. It is a long psalm, 51 verses, but we can never go wrong reading God's Word together. So we're going to take time to read through the entire psalm. It takes less than five minutes. So I just ask you to follow along as we read Psalm 89 in its entirety this morning. Psalm 89, beginning of verse 1. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen when I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn 
the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his thrones as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word, for all of it. And we're thankful for Psalm 89 this morning and what you intend to teach us through it. We're so thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place this morning, for his perfect righteous life, for his all-sufficient death, for the glorious power of his resurrection. We're thankful that because of what he has done, we have been redeemed as your children, for all those who have placed their faith in Christ. And we're thankful that you and your graciousness to us and your mercy to us has sent your spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, once more, we ask again, as we ask every single week, we beg you, we plead with you to be at work in us by the power of your spirit this morning through the truth of your word. Father, Psalm 89 remains so relevant for our lives even today. Every person in this room has been or will be going through a dark and difficult time where we will question your faithfulness to us, where we will struggle to understand how it is that our circumstances could represent any semblance of your faithfulness to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would use Psalm 89 just to help us to remember how we ought to respond in such situations. I pray that you would use it to remind us that you are faithful and that we must cling to the truth of your word at all times and in all circumstances. And so, Father, I ask that you would guide my words this morning, that you would allow me to say what is only what is true of you and what is true of your word. 
And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you respond when it seems like someone hasn't kept their word? How do you respond when it seems like someone hasn't kept their word? Now, of course, that often depends on the person, right? So for example, if someone tells you they're going to be at your house at 5 o'clock and it's now 5.05, then your degree of concern largely depends on who it is that's coming to your house, right? Right? Because there are people, we all know them, who consistently arrive, quit staring at me, right? Who consistently arrive five minutes late, 10 minutes late. Spouses no nudging each other in these moments, right? We know who those people are. And if it's 5.05 and they're not there yet, we're not really worried about it, right? We know, okay, well, they'll be pulling up probably any minute now. This is just the habit of their life. This is what they do. But there are other people we know who are never late. In fact, if they're uh, five minutes early, they feel late, right? They're always, not just on time, but they're there early for every single thing. And if they're not going to be there early, they'll text you or call you in the car on the way there and tell you that they're going to be not going to be early. And they'll tell you exactly what time they anticipate getting there and when you should expect them to pull into your driveway. Now, if they haven't shown up by 5.05 and you haven't heard from them, you begin to assume something catastrophic has happened, right? Right, there's been an accident, there's a traffic jam that they weren't anticipating, their phone is dead, or worse, right? Your, your mind begins to wonder, like, what possibly could have happened for them to not be here at 5 o'clock and they haven't called and talked to me or told me, right? We would wonder where they are, whereas those who are typically late, right, we give them the benefit of the doubt they're on their way anyway. But ultimately, my point is, our reaction to someone who seems to not be keeping their word largely depends on their former practices, the habits of their life. Sometimes it even depends on their character, right? There are some people who just are not trustworthy. It's not just that they arrive fashionably late. They just have trouble keeping commitments. And so how we respond, what's going on in our heart and minds in those moments, right? We take all of that into account when it seems someone has failed to keep their word, to do what they said they were going to do. But, but here's the question we really need to deal with this morning. How do we respond when someone who is fully trustworthy, has a proven record of faithfulness, has unlimited power, and is sovereign over all things, seems to have failed to keep his word. What do we do in those moments? How do we respond in that time? Or to put it simply, when our experience, when our circumstances don't feel like they line up with what we understood God to have promised us, how do we respond in that moment? You see, this is what Ethan the Ezraite was dealing with. We see there at the beginning of Psalm 89 that this psalm was written by Ethan the Ezraite. So this is what he's dealing with. This is the struggle that he is facing. Now, we don't know with absolute certainty who Ethan the Ezraite is, but we're, we're fairly certain that it's probably the same Ethan the Ezraite that's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. He's being, uh, Solomon is being compared to Ethan, and the author of Kings is reaching to find someone who is supremely wise, who he can compare Solomon to, and he wants to say, look, Solomon's even more wise than these guys. And so this is what 1 Kings 4.31 says, talking about Solomon, for he, Solomon, was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, 
and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So Ethan must have been an extremely wise person, right? Because they're trying to find who can we compare Solomon to and say he's even wiser than this guy. And Ethan's one of the four guys they pick out to compare him to. So that gives us a sense of time frame in which Ethan lived. Therefore, it seems, it seems, again, we don't know with absolute certainty, but it seems that the circumstances into which or about which Ethan is writing are likely what happens after the death of Solomon. You may or may not know if you're not familiar with the Bible, but Solomon was the king of Israel, the united kingdom of Israel. Solomon was David's son, the David to whom these radical promises came that we just read in Psalm 89. And Solomon, toward the end of his life, fell into deep and wicked sin and turned away from God. And he died, and Rehoboam, his son, came up in his place as king, and Rehoboam was also wicked and evil. And because of Solomon's sin, and because of Rehoboam's sin, Rehoboam being David's grandson, because of their sin, because of their wickedness, ultimately God divided Israel, the whole kingdom, into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? So that in and of itself is tragic. This radical promise that God has made to David already seems to be falling apart. And not only that, by the fifth year of Rehoboam's reign, the king of Egypt comes to the southern kingdom. That's the throne of David. And the king of Egypt plunders the house of the Lord, takes the treasures, takes the treasures of the palace, takes the very treasures that belong to David. And this is just two generations from David. It would have been very disorienting for God's people. Right? We just read the radical promises in the middle of Psalm 89, these, these eternal promises that God would never allow David's enemies to have victory over him, that his throne is going to reign forever. And here we are with Rehoboam, David's grandson. The kingdom has been divided and Egypt has come in and absolutely ransacked the place. So Ethan's asking God, what, what are you doing? It doesn't feel like you're being faithful to what you said you were going to do. So what we have in Psalm 89 is the response of Ethan to this tragic situation, what felt like the, the tearing down of David's throne already in the life of his grandson. So you see, it's through this psalm, through this struggle that Ethan the Ezraite has, that, that we're going to learn a lot how we should respond to God when it feels like, our circumstances feel like God is not keeping his promises that he's made to us. And I think if we're being honest, all of us have felt that at some point in our lives. God's made radical promises to us through Christ. He has said to us that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he's commanded us to provide for our family. And then yet there are those times when you may have experienced losing your job, and you're wondering, well, God, how do I provide for my family and do what you've asked me to do if I don't even have income coming in? Or maybe you desire to honor God in your marriage, but your spouse was never on the same page or walked away from the Lord and never had the same commitments you had and left you, and you feel like, this doesn't feel like you've been faithful to me, Father. Maybe you desire to be married and you have since you were a small child and, and the Lord never brought you a spouse or maybe he did bring you a spouse and it wasn't, like I said, it didn't work out. Or, or maybe you desired to have children and you felt like that's what God was calling you to, but it never happened. Or maybe you had children and there was even pain in that because you lost a child or your child never walked with the Lord or turned away and rejected Jesus. Right? We can list on and on and on these difficult, horrible situations that we all struggle with where it feels like God has abandoned us in those moments. 
But I just want to remind you that it's even another step beyond that that Ethan is dealing with in Psalm 89. We don't have time to fully flesh this out, but the reality is all those things I just listed, God never absolutely promised any of those things to any of us. But here in Psalm 89, God did make specific radical promises to David. Right? I'm going to be faithful to your throne and your offspring forever. And yet it feels like it's all falling apart. So we can learn a lot about how to respond to God when it seems his promises aren't coming to pass from this psalm. So how should we respond? I just want to run through, quickly run through five ways this psalm, I think, calls us to respond when it seems like God is not being faithful to us. And I'm intentionally, by the way, using the phrase seems like because God is always faithful. He's always faithful, but there are moments in our lives where it seems like it feels like he's not being. And in those moments, how do we respond? Number one, we declare our confidence in God. Declare your confidence in God. Number two, remind yourself that God is able. Number three, remember the promises God has made. Number four, acknowledge your struggle to understand. And number five, remember God's time scale is different than yours. So let's just work our way through those one at a time. First of all, declare your confidence in God. We see that in verses 1 through 4. It's really important for us to see how Ethan begins this psalm. Remember, this is a very real struggle. He is right there. He's right there in the middle of it. The throne of David seems to be faltering. The the Egyptians have ransacked it. And yet, even when he sits down to pen this psalm, here at the beginning, it's a statement of absolute assurance and confidence in who God is and what he has promised. Do you see that there in verse 1, chapter 89, verse 1? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Right? Ethan's not questioning whether he's going to keep worshiping God. He says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to keep singing. I'm going to keep trusting forever and ever with my mouth. I'm going to make known his faithfulness to all generations. I'm not backing away from that, God. I'm just declaring to you, even though I'm struggling right now, I'm going to continue to give praise to your name. I am confident in your promises. In fact, he expresses his confidence in these specific promises that God made. You see that in verses 3 and 4? You have said, so this is Ethan talking to God, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So even though Ethan looks at his circumstances, he looks at what's going on around him. He still says, look, I'm I'm still trusting the promise that you made. I'm still remembering this staggering radical promise that you made to David. that You would establish his offspring forever and build his throne for all generations. I mean, that's a... That is a staggering promise. It even seems borderline impossible. But here's the the reality we need to remember. The struggle that Ethan is facing, the struggle that you or I may face in our lives, only becomes a struggle if we take God's promises seriously. If you don't take God's promises seriously, then you don't struggle when it doesn't seem that he's done it because why would he, right? But if you're taking his promises seriously, as Ethan is here and as we ought to in verses 1 through 4, then it becomes a struggle. God, I trust you. You're faithful. You've proven it generation after generation after generation as we read the truth of your word. You are a faithful God who keeps your promises. And it feels like you're not doing that right now, but I I know that you will. I'm declaring my confidence and assurance that you will do what you have said you will do. So even in our confusion, even in our darkness, we ought to declare our confidence 
in God's promises and in his faithfulness. Because when we do so, we are reminded that the truth of God's word always trumps how we feel about our experiences. Your feelings are deceptive. And the truth of God's word always trumps how we feel. Which is why I think he spends the next 15 verses recounting that God is able to bring his promises to pass. So that's what we have. The second thing, the second way we need to respond is that we must remind ourselves that he is able. Remind yourself that he is able. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 18. He just goes on a tear of exalting God's power and majesty and might. And so it begins in verses 5 through 8 where he is comparing God or, or even saying he can't even be compared to the angels, right? We see that in a number of different ways. Verse 5 talks about the assembly of the holy ones. He's referencing the angels. Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to you? The heavenly beings, he mentions there in the second half of verse 6. Verse 7, the council of the holy ones. Verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts. He's talking about the host of the army of angels. So he's going on this terror of talking about the angels, and he's saying, look, God is even greater than they are. Now, it's really important that we remember how the Bible describes angels, right? We talked about this long, long time ago when we, over a year ago now, I guess, when we were in the book of Hebrews. And at the beginning of Hebrews, in chapter 1, the author compares Jesus to the angels and says that Jesus is far superior to them. And we reminded ourselves then, as I want to remind you this morning, that angels are not cute little chubby things, right? They're not precious moments like figurines with little wings that can barely get them off the ground and, 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 and a little harp and dimples, right? That's not who angels are. That's not how the Bible describes angels. In fact, every time, almost every time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, what's the first thing they say? Do not be afraid, I don't know about you, but I've never been terrified of a precious moments angel, right? I'm not going to respond that way. But angels are majestic and powerful, right? They appear and they do not be afraid, right? We just a few weeks ago were reflecting on God's holiness and we read from Isaiah chapter 6 and the angels are described as having six wings, right? These powerful beings with six wings and, and when they speak, when the angels speak, the very foundation of the ground trembles, Or you have a single individual angel who in one night takes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. In one night. Or you have the description in Revelation chapter 10 that describes an angel who's wrapped in a cloud and his face shines like the sun and his legs are on fire. And with one foot he stands in the sea and the other foot stands on the shore. Right, This enormous, majestic creature. In fact... At another place in Revelation, when John, who wrote Revelation, sees an angel, he, he's tempted. He begins to want to fall down and worship the angel because he thinks it's God. It's so majestic in its appearance. right? These, the true angels, the angels of the Bible, not the ones of folklore, right? The, the angels of the Bible are these majestic, powerful, overwhelming creatures. But what does verse 6 say? Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? It's not that... It's not that the psalmist. It's not that Ethan is comparing God to the angels. He's saying, look, he can't even be compared to the angels. He so far exceeds the glory and majesty of the angels. We can't even put him in the same category, right? He created the angels. He rules over the angels. He is more majestic, infinitely more majestic than they are. Even in verse 7, it says that God is feared in the council of the holy ones. 
These angels who wipe out, one angel wipes out 185 Assyrian soldiers in one night. The angel who has legs of fire and a face shining like the sun and puts his foot in the sea and the shore trembles in the presence of the holy God. He exceeds and is incomparable in his character and strength, power and majesty, even among the most powerful supernatural creatures imaginable. And then verses 9 through 14 go on to describe his power over the earth. Just quickly, you see that verse 9. He rules the raging sea. He stills the waves when they rise, just as he he parted the waters, both when Moses led them over the Red Sea, when Joshua led them over the river, over the Jordan River, right? He parts, he's in sovereign control. Jesus himself spoke to to the storm and the wind and calmed the sea and the wind. He crushes Rahab like a carcass. We don't know exactly what's being referred to by Rahab here. It's not the person, Rahab. It could be a reference to Egypt. It could be a reference to some mythological creature. But the point is that that God is powerful. He's powerful that nothing can stand in his way. Verse 11, just as we sing, this is our father's world. The heavens are his. The earth belongs to him. The world and all that is in it, he found them. He created them. Even the mountains of Tabor and Hermon joyously praise him. Nothing can stand in his way. Nothing. He is able to do all that he said he is going to do. Not only is he powerful and majestic, but he is also of moral excellence. You see that beginning of verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. Therefore, verse 15, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in his name. Because verse 18, this is Ezra saying, look, our shield belongs to the Lord, meaning their king. Our king belongs to the Holy One of Israel. The conclusion from this section is that nothing can stand in the way of God keeping his promises, right? It's not a traffic jam keeping God from doing what he said he was going to do. Nothing can prevent him from keeping his promises to us. He is majestic and powerful and sovereign over all things. So it's so important to remind ourselves of this truth that even as we sit in our confusion sometimes... When it feels like God has abandoned us to remind us that there is nothing that can keep him from fulfilling the promises that he has made to us. And the reason that's important is because whatever reason we may want to attribute for it seeming like God has not kept his promises, it cannot be because he wasn't able. That's not an option left on the table. Now that may for a season actually increase our confusion because if he's able and yet not doing anything It can make us feel even more abandoned. But in the end, in the end, truth, as I said, will always triumph over our feelings. And that's why Ethan continues to meditate on truth. And so he transitions to the third thing we need to remember, the third way we need to respond. We must remember the promises that he has made. So we need to remember the promises that God has made. This is what the psalmist does. This is what Ethan does in verses 19 through 37. He just recounts the radical promises that God has made to David. Just to quickly review 19 through 26, but then I want to really zero in on verses 27 to 29. So in 19 through 26, he just talks about all the ways, all the things that God has promised to David. Things like verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. God says, verse 23, he's going to crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Verse 25, he will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, meaning he's going to expand and keep his kingdom in place, the geographic boundaries of his kingdom. 
Verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. He's saying, look, he's going to keep his hope fixed on me. But then let's really zero in on verses 27 through 29. This is where the promise, the radical nature of the promise really comes to bear. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn here is referencing his position. He shall be in first place is what that means. He will be the highest of of all the kings. No king will be compared to him. My steadfast love, verse 28, I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. Now listen to verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now, that seems like an impossible promise, right? How is God going to establish a human king right from the line of David whose throne will even last into the days of the heavens? Well, the only answer to that is that he brings the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh to sit on the throne of David. That is the only path forward to God fulfilling this promise That's why it's so important to realize that Jesus came from the line of David. It is through Jesus that God keeps his promises that he has made to his people. It is through Jesus that he keeps his promises that he has made to us. And as Jesus sits on the throne of David, as he is the offspring of David, as he comes in in human flesh, his days will be established forever. The steadfast love of the Father will be for him forever. He is the highest of the kings of the earth. It is through Christ who came and lived a perfect righteous life in our place and laid down his life in our place that we could be with him forever and ever. And even then, when it seemed like all hope was lost, God remains a promise-keeping God. And Jesus rose from the grave and sat down at the right hand of God the Father where he reigns to this day. And one day he will return And he will sit on the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. But of course, Ethan can't see all of that right now. And this promise was guaranteed. You see this even in verses 30 to 37. That God said, even if David's children forsake my law and turn their back on me, even then I'm not going to give up on this promise. I will keep my promise to David. I'll punish them. They're going to have to deal with their sin. They're going to have to face the consequences for their sin. You see that in verse 32, I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. This brings us to, I think, what is the ultimate point of this psalm, that everything has been set up for this. Ethan has declared his confidence in the Lord, right? He's declared his confidence in the steadfast promises that God has made to them. He's made clear that there's nothing that can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. He's recounted the radical, astonishing nature of the promises that God has made to David. Even if, even if David's children rebel against him, he will remain faithful. But as before, with recounting that God is able, and we remember the truth of God's promises, it can leave us in a state of confusion, right? Okay, he's able. He made these promises. It's not because the sons of David were wicked. I mean, he said he was going to be faithful even in spite of that. And yet it doesn't feel like God is faithful. So what is going on? Part of the struggle when we're in those dark moments is learning to trust our father even when we can't see what he's doing. See, Ethan had no clue exactly how God was going to fulfill this promise. He didn't know that it was going to be something radical like sending the divine, eternal Son of God to take on flesh to sit on the throne of David. He would have never understood fully exactly how that would have played out. But he just had to cling to the promises, regardless of how he felt. You know, it reminds me of, uh, I've never flown a plane, but I've 
read about and heard about people who fly planes. And one important step of flying a plane is being able to get your instrument license, right? If you can fly by instruments, then you're allowed to fly in bad weather. Because when you're in the midst of bad weather, you get completely disoriented, right? You, you don't know up from down. You could be pulling and thinking you're going up, rising into the sky. You could be crashing into the ground because you have no way of knowing what direction you're going. If you're going up, if you're going down, if you're going west or east, you have no idea. And you think you know, and they train you not to trust what you feel. Because if you trust what you feel, you're going to crash into the ground. And so they tell you, you, you've got to ignore how you feel and you have to fly by your instruments. You have to pay attention to what they're saying to you and you'll get home safely. Well, this is essentially what I'm saying to us this morning, what Psalm 89 is saying to us. When we're in our dark moments, when it doesn't feel like God is being faithful, we have to trust our instruments. We have to trust the truth of God's word that even though we don't feel it, he is being faithful because he's able, because he has made radical promises to us, because he has never let us down. But that doesn't mean we don't need to acknowledge our struggles. We can still acknowledge that we're having difficulty understanding, which is exactly what the psalmist does. It's what Ethan does in verses 38 through 45. So this is the fourth response. Acknowledge your struggle to understand. Right? This has been a theme throughout the Psalms as we've been in Psalm 13, Psalm 32, and now Psalm 89. In every single Psalm, it's just simply this. When we come before the Lord, we must be honest with him. Egypt has ransacked the throne room. They've ransacked the temple. They've ransacked the palace. They've taken all this stuff. Ethan's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. Solomon fell into serious sin. Rehoboam has rebelled from God. The kingdom's been divided. The throne seems to be faltering and falling apart. And so the psalmist is simply left asking. Ethan's left asking, verse 38, what are you doing? Why have you cast off and rejected us? Why are you full of wrath against your anointed? It doesn't seem like you're keeping the promises that you've made. Verse 42, you've exalted the right hand of his foes. You said you were going to exalt David's right hand, but instead you're exalting his enemies. You've, verse 44, you've cast his throne to the ground. The psalmist is just left confused. Ethan is left confused. He just piles on observance after observance of how it seems that God has brought destruction to the kingdom and has given up on his promises. Now, that's not true, but that's how he felt. And it's okay to tell God how you feel. The Psalms have been clear about that. And it's important. We don't have to just always have a smile on our face when we talk to God, when we pray. We don't have to just say something trite like, well, God, this is hard, but I know you're in control, so I'm not going to worry about anything. Now, that's true. I hope that's true. I hope we mean that. But it feels light. It doesn't feel like we're taking seriously what it is we're dealing with. Like we're not feeling the weight of what we're experiencing. Trusting the promises of God in the midst of hard times doesn't mean we have to pretend like our circumstances aren't extremely difficult. We can cry out to God and say, I trust you, Father, but this is, this is really hard. I just don't understand. I feel like I'm faithfully walking with you, but my life seems to be getting more difficult and burdensome every single day. I feel like every day I wake up, Just what I'm dealing with, my joy is being zapped away from me by the struggles of each day. And even though I'm pursuing your word each day, I'm just worn out. I'm exhausted. You feel distant from me. I don't feel like you're nearby. I don't understand why it's so tough to walk with you if you've promised me that you will never leave me or forsake me. I just don't feel that, Father, and I don't understand why. You see, the Psalms say to us, I think a hundred times out of a hundred, God would rather us say that to him instead of just a trite sentence. He wants the honesty of our heart. 
He can handle it. He didn't strike down Ethan for asking questions. And he won't strike you down either. But the ultimate answer lies in remembering, number five, that God's time scale is different than yours. God's time scale is different than yours. Look at verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Ethan's essentially saying, God, I'm not going to be around much longer. Why don't you step up and deal with this while I can see it with my own eyes? He's saying, look, because you haven't done it in my lifetime, Father, are you you're just going to be like this forever? It's taking your life and judging God by your life. But listen to me this morning. God does not operate on our timescales. His timescale is different than your timescale. Now, again, Ethan's just being honest and asking questions. He brings us to, I think, what is the key question of this whole psalm in verse 47. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? See, here the author is essentially confessing, admitting that because he simply can't see or feel the reality of the promises, that's led him to question the steadfast love of the Lord. But here's where the honest questions are okay, but we also need to see why it is that we often misunderstand God's promises, why it is that Ethan was struggling with this. It's, it's a helpful kind of theological concept called the already and the not yet. And getting God's promises in those right categories are very important for your walk with the Lord. There are promises that God has made to us that we are to experience right now in this life, right? That's the already. But there are a lot of promises that he has made that go in the not yet category. And if we start anticipating and expecting the not yet category to happen in our lives right now, we're going to be frustrated with God more than we ought to be, right? Just, just one example, big picture example. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus makes the promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yet the earth is littered with local churches that are not around anymore. Not one single church that was written to in the New Testament is around today. Does that mean God failed? That he didn't build his church? That the kingdom of hell prevailed against it? No. Just because one son of David failed to be faithful, just because one son of David faltered, does that mean that God had failed the promises that he had made? No, because God is working on the long term. So yes, Rehoboam and many other sons of David were wicked and rebellious kings. But it is through God's sovereignty and providence over all of their reigns that he brought King Jesus into the world. And yes, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It may just not happen the way we think it's going to. But Jesus will reign. His church will stand in the last day. He will return and he will rule. In other words, many of God's promises must be viewed in the long term. And Ethan was struggling to understand how this particular king, Rehoboam, could experience such destruction in his lifetime. But as I said, we have the advantage of knowing how it all played out, that Christ came and he sat on the throne. And so the reminder for us this morning is that our isolated experiences must be viewed in light of the glorious big picture of what God is doing. We must not, as the hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way, we must not judge the Lord by feeble sense but we must trust him for his grace. We must lean on the truth of God's word and not give in to our feelings. Because this I promise you, this I promise you. I don't make a lot of promises to you as your pastor, but I'll make this promise to you. One day when we're sitting together in the new heavens and the new earth and you look back over your life, you will say, God never 
once failed me. He never brought something into my life that wasn't for my eternal good. He never brought something into my life that wasn't to get me here to this very moment for all eternity. We won't see it now. We will see it then because he's faithful and we'll struggle in our lives and we ought to struggle and we can be honest with God, but let's cling to the truth of his word and not get lost in the darkness, which is why in the end, the ultimate conclusion, I love this. This is my, probably my favorite part of Psalm 89. Through all the struggle, through all the doubts, through all the questions, what's the last thing Ethan says to the Lord? Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to say, blessed be the Lord. I'm going to keep leaning on you, Father. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your faithfulness. We are thankful that you have never forsaken us. Even in the moments where we feel forsaken, even in the moments where we feel like you have abandoned us, you have never left us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to follow the pattern of Psalm 89, that you would help us to respond in those moments of struggles with honesty, but also with trust and confidence in who you are. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you are able to keep your promises and that nothing will stand in your way. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.